1: In my opinion, the single best online resource for visiting American national parks, or even appreciating them from afar, is a site called More Than Just Parks. You can find it at morethanjustparks.com. This site is run by two brothers, Will and Jim Pattis, who will be joining us today. I found More Than Just Parks while researching for our podcast trip out west, and their site is addicting in a good way their videos have been called the most beautiful videos of america you'll ever watch will and jim have been profiled by everyone from national geographic and the weather channel to the today show and i'm grateful to have them on they have contagious enthusiasm for the national park service they also have at least from my perspective one of the best jobs in the world it's a pretty neat job. It gets us out to some really amazing
2: places. It was a lot of trial and error in the beginning trying to figure out how we could make a career out of this because a lot of people ask us, well, how do you get that job? Well, it didn't exist. You know? <laughs> sure. It's not like I, I went to LinkedIn and looked for an application. Yeah, no, we just started making films on these places that really matter to us.
1: I wanted to invite Will and Jim to share some of their insights on the parks But I also wanted to hear more about how they came to develop what is arguably the best national park resource on the web.
2: So basically, Jim and I are fresh out of high school, maybe like 18, 19-ish. Yeah, about 19, yeah. We're from Atlanta, Georgia, originally, and just south of there, actually, Petrie City. And we decide with some friends that we're going to go on a spur-of-the-moment road trip to the Grand Canyon. And so we all pack up our car and we've got some kind of comical photos of this. But imagine we take our grandmother's Prius at the time, just cram the back of it full with bags. So much stuff. You'd never be able to use that much stuff. And we take it all across the country. And along the way to the Grand Canyon, we stopped off at a national park called Petrified Forest in Arizona. And... Just completely blew our minds. Coming from the East Coast, your sense of nature is different than the West Coast, whereas on the East Coast, it's a bit more intimate. On the West Coast, it's grand landscapes, massive things. We are looking at a striped blue mesa and petroglyphs from hundreds of years ago, maybe thousands, of some of them. There's like this lightning storm, there's a rainbow, it looks almost biblical. And we say to ourselves, wow, how have we never been to a place like this before? And then we had a horrible time at the Grand Canyon where we decided to hike down to the bottom. We bit off a lot more than we could chew at the Grand Canyon (laughs) at the time. But we made it out and we said to ourselves after that, it's amazing that we've never been to a place like this before. How many other people are out there like us who have never experienced a national park? And then we said, what can we do to inform and educate folks to visit these places responsibly? And so we started More Than Just Parks, which is basically just a film-based project with also great online resources creating really nice films on the national parks. And since then, we've expanded to public lands in general. And it's about the national parks and the forests and all of those protected areas where people can go and have these amazing experiences. And like Will said, that's really what it's been about for us so that more people can have the experience that we had because there are so many people out there who haven't had the opportunity to get out there. And it truly can be life-changing. We just want people to know about them and maybe we can encourage them to go and
1: visit one. One of the most important figures in the history of the national parks is Teddy Roosevelt, who founded the United States Forest Service and launched five new national parks between 1901 and 1909, more than doubling the size of the existing National Park Service. I asked Jim and Will what had led Roosevelt to make conservation such a central part of his agenda.
2: Theodore Roosevelt, he was grew up in a very patrician family in New York. And so I think he had opportunities to interact with the natural world in a very safe and forgiving environment as a young boy. And I think probably the biggest thing for him was he always had a sense of wanting to give back and things like that, a sense of public service that was very much ingrained in his family. But I think the turning point for him was his wife dies, And he experiences this great tragedy in his life and he goes, he decides to go out west to the Dakotas and because he just needs to get away from it all, he ends up going out there and the bison are still out there. Uh, They've been kind of their numbers have been really decimated quite a bit, but he goes out there and he sees these incredible landscapes. And he just falls in love with the West and with the fact that these places exist out there. And I think it was really a transformative period in his life. And he decides to, at that time, it was what was known as the open range out West. And so they were running cattle and then they were just kind of, whereas today you have ranches and the cattle are all kind of fenced in and so forth. Back then you'd have great big herds of cattle being run all over the Western United States and all you did was brand them and that's how you knew which cows were yours and which cows were somebody else's and anyway he decided to get into that lost a lot of money in that business and but he loved the the area and the experiences that he had out there there's some amazing stories about his experiences out west One of my favorites is when he, he goes out and he's determined he's, Theodore Roosevelt was a big hunter and he, so he always wanted to get a bison. He always wanted to find a bison and, and, and hunt one. And so he goes out with this guy who knows the area. This is early on in his time in in North Dakota, and they go out on this track into the badlands. They're on their horses and so forth. And they're trying to find bison and they can't find them for days and days. And the weather is really nasty. And at one point they, they set up camp for the night and they sleep out under the stars and it starts pouring rain in the night. And then the rain turns to sleet and they're just getting absolutely just downpour on them. And the guide who is with Theodore Roosevelt looks over at him and he is smiling from ear to ear. And he says, by Godfrey, but this is fun and that's his that's who he was and he just it didn't matter he just loved those landscapes and as he put it the strenuous life and so i think that's where his love and appreciation of nature came from was that experience and then of course he turned that into action when he became president and was dead set on preserving as much of those incredible spaces as he could but uh, yeah and to add to that i would say that both of the roosevelts though were considered traitors to their class to an extent. Whereas Theodore Roosevelt, it was in a different sense than with Franklin Roosevelt, because Franklin Roosevelt, what's interesting is people know Theodore Roosevelt as, people refer to him as one of the greatest, maybe the greatest conservation president. But I would say that Franklin Roosevelt's achievements often go way under the radar, because Theodore Roosevelt started the Forest Service, U.S. Forest Service. He started the U.S. Fish and Wildlife System. These happened under Theodore Roosevelt. But Franklin Roosevelt immensely expanded them. And if you hadn't had, like, the amount of federal wildlife reserves in America just exploded to this grid where Franklin Roosevelt was dead set on birds being able to land at different places all across the country. And so the federal wildlife refuge system that we have today is largely because of Franklin Roosevelt's work. Um, Speaking to your point earlier, soil conservation was a massive program that he undertook and that he knew firsthand because he had his own experimental forest in New York where he tried things out himself. And so he knew about these things firsthand. He would try them, both of them, but from different angles. And so I think to sum it up, and then basically Franklin Roosevelt's Conservation somewhat dipped for a time. We had LBJ had some great conservation achievements, but not really until Carter, who those are the three names that really need to come up in any conservation discussion in America. I think for, from Gemini's standpoint, the, top, the actual greatest conservation president was Carter, but you could argue make the case for any three of them, and they, all their achievements were incredible.
1: Interestingly, the Roosevelt presidents shared more than a last name they shared a hobby that helped cultivate their love of nature.
2: I would just add another thing about the Roosevelts, about FDR and and Theodore Roosevelt, is they were actually both avid birders from a very young age. And that's something that a lot of people don't know about. And that was their earliest introduction to the natural world was through birding. They were obsessed with birds. And FDR was actually quite an expert on birds. And he actually trained under Audubon and some of the really great ornithologists. And FDR, the Museum of Natural History in Washington DC, a large portion of their bird collection is actually from FDR collecting bird specimens as a child. I'm talking about a 10 year old, 12 year old child who was going out and, and he would collect specimens and he his preservation techniques were so good and his knowledge of the birds were was so extensive that the museum of natural history in in DC and in in New York were accepting these And he, still to this day, you can see birds that very young FDR was collecting. And not because he was famous, because he was not famous at the time. It was purely because he was so well regarded in that field. So both of them have always had an affinity for animals and, and the natural world, I think. And that certainly had a lot to do with what they did as president.
1: This connection with birding makes a lot of sense to me. Unlike hunters or fishermen, birders don't bring anything home with them they simply observe and appreciate. Both in nature and communicating with it, on some level, is the sole objective. The sensibilities of the birder are the same sensibilities of the conservationist. The point is to view it, participate in it, and to walk away, leaving as little trace of your own presence as possible. So who better than a couple of birders to drive America's early conservation efforts?
2: I have had an affinity for birds since I was a kid. We, Will, and I grew up in the Piedmont region of Georgia, and so there's really incredible songbirds there. I used to go out into the backyard and take note of the different ones that were there, and and I've always just loved observing them. I do to this day, and just to your point, I think it really does. It's that sort of you're going there to see them, not to disturb anything. It's it's just it's such a respectful thing because you have an affinity for these creatures, and you want to observe them in their natural state. And that's really what national parks are. It's about experiencing this place and seeing it in its natural state. And so I do think it really translates really well. One story about Theodore Roosevelt that I always love is when he was president at the White House, he would, the groundskeepers were often very confused by him because sometimes he had been known to go outside, and he would stand under a great big oak tree, and he would stand completely still, would not move for more than two hours, just watching birds come in and out of the tree. The sitting U.S. president would walk out onto the front lawn of the White House and stand completely still for two hours or more, just observing birds. And that's that shows you the deep passion that he had for wildlife and and the natural world that, frankly, I would say since Carter, we just haven't seen. You've had presidents who have done great things, but none who have had that deep passion for the natural world. I don't think we've seen that in a long time.
1: While I was somewhat familiar with the conservation work of the Roosevelt's, I had no idea that Jimmy Carter had potentially outdone both of them in one short four-year presidency. Being from Carter's home state of Georgia, Jim and Will were both more familiar with our 39th president's legacy and have since come to view him as one of the more underappreciated figures in American history.
2: Jim and I could gush about Jimmy Carter all day, but he single-handedly doubled the size of the national park system, tripled the size of the national wild and scenic rivers, the list goes on, but very important figure in conservation history. It is an overlooked story, a very overlooked story. Will and I have been fascinated by it for some time. But basically, I think it can be explained to twofold: as the Carter comes in as president, and the country is facing an energy crisis right away, and at the same time, inflation is also becoming a real problem, as we're seeing today. But it was this a lot is, worse yeah. both of than... these are starting to sound quite familiar. Anyway, the. Carter has to try and figure out a way to tackle inflation and this energy crisis. But you also have to remember that Carter is a conservationist. And so he's getting, a lot of people are saying, we've got to drill. We've got to, we've got to have more coal. We've got to have all these different things and you've got to do away with regulations on everything. And Carter can't really do that. And and another thing that is happening is that Carter was kind of people in Washington did not like him. And because he was this Georgia guy, and he was not a DC politician by any means. And one of the things that he did early on was he actually vetoed a bunch of dam projects. Because he was, as Will touched on earlier, really the first president to understand that dams were actually not a good thing for the environment. And he was Probably, I think, of any U.S. president, he was the biggest champion of what's known as wild rivers. Carter loves wild rivers and keeping rivers in their pristine, wild state. And there are so few rivers left in the United States that are actually preserved in their natural state. And they're part of what's known as the wild and scenic rivers system. And Carter expanded that greatly under his presidency. But anyway, he angered a lot of people in his own party by vetoing these water projects, these dams that were gonna bring a lot of money and a lot of jobs to different districts and things like that. And at the same time, Alaska For decades, politicians in D.C. have been trying to figure out what to do with a lot of these huge tracts of land in Alaska. And you have a lot of interests like mining and and oil interests and, of course, logging interests who are wanting to make these tracts, have them made available to them for extracting all these different things. And And again, this to stress the backdrop of an energy crisis. Right. And Carter is dead set against allowing that he wants to preserve these places. And so basically, long story short, is a lot of things don't go Carter's way in the sense that he's fighting an uphill battle and he's swimming against the current. And uh, Carter decides to preserve this land in Alaska, very politically unpopular thing to do. He vetoes water projects, very unpopular thing to do. He doesn't go far enough to deregulate energy and things like that which was also unpopular and then of course you had the iran hostage crisis and things like that that were completely beyond his control but the crazy thing is that carter had actually he appointed paul volcker who got inflation under control and he had actually put in the solutions to all these problems that then his successor ronald reagan got the credit for but it's a really overlooked story but carter basically said i'm going to do the right thing even though it's going to his advisors were telling him it's going to cost you this is we're not going to get reelected if you do this but he was saying he said no i'm, I'm going to do the right thing regardless and he paid the price but we don't have leaders who do that anymore who will say that who are willing to forego a second term if that's what's necessary or Carter hoped that he would be rewarded for his actions that wasn't the case but now everybody everybody tries to learn the lesson from Carter and say oh you've got to be worried about re-election you've got to things yeah, like that and, so. but it's interesting because from I would say our perspective the true lessons to learn from Carter are the farsightedness sightedness not just on the public lands, but also he's the first en- president that was really concerned with renewable energies. Famously, put solar panels on the roof of the White House. Invested over a billion dollars into solar initiatives with energy efficiency. He put in place uh, that the fleet standards for automobiles. And correct me if I'm wrong on this one, Jim. Or so but, by 1995, be. he had put in fuel emission standards. So that by 1995, the fleet average for car manufacturers, the fleet average miles per gallon would be 45 miles to the gallon. And the mm-hmm. automakers all said that they could do it. They agreed. to. And it. they agreed to do and it. And then the next We president... don't have that today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so the next president comes and rolls it back. But I think that's the, instead of the political lesson that was learned by future presidents, it was this idea of avoiding these big ticket issues and avoid doing these right things. And it was more political expediency versus doing the right thing regardless of the consequences. But now, 40 years later, we look back at it, and especially as millennials, and I think his presidency will get rosier and rosier because we look, it'll, it's coming out and it'll continue to come out. But this guy was way ahead of his time. He was right. And the history books will be very kind to him. And so I hope that's the lesson that politicians start to get from Carter is that maybe it's not always about that re-election or maybe there is still room to tackle big issues. The
0: detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is
1: back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town.
0: I don't think that they arrested the right people. If It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack.
2: You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me
1: again near my whole life. You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse.
0: I have to ask, did you kill Renee?
2: And I think it really, it also comes down to the voters. And you have to say, as people, you have to say, we need to reward leaders who will do things like that rather than punishing them.
1: Presidents don't think like that anymore. None of them do. The failure to take big political risks on behalf of the American landscape is a bipartisan problem. Jim brought up a current example of our sitting U.S. president, who happens to be of the same political party as Jimmy Carter
2: even just look at the current president, who's been great on conservation. Even he is at odds currently with President Carter over the road issue in Alaska. And I think Jim a little bit more about this than I do, but it's definitely worth some, something worth mentioning. So Carter, we touched on that Carter preserved over 150 million acres of land in Alaska, in what's known as Anilka, the Alaska National Interest conservation lands Act. land conservation yeah, yeah, and, yeah anyway and he one of those was a wildlife refuge its name is escaping me right now but oh, there's Google a wildlife it. refuge in Alaska that is wilderness and wilderness is the highest level of protection that land can get in the United States and it means that you can't do anything to that land it has to be left in its natural state And basically there's a controversy now where there's a local Native American tribe there that wants to build a road through this wildlife refuge in order to get access to an airport. And some people are saying that it's vitally needed for safety and some medical things in that nature. There's also a cannery there that wants the road to be able to ferry their employees back and forth. So there's some controversy with that. But the fact of the matter is that the road would go through this wilderness, through this wildlife refuge, and you can't do that. This was an act of Congress. And so what happened is under the previous administration, what they did was they tried to do a land swap where they said, okay... Fish and Wildlife will trade the land that you need to build this road for 40,000 acres over here. And they tried to do that and it was held up in court. And now for reasons unknown to me, the Biden administration is defending that move in court. And they're saying, no, we can swap that land. And it's very controversial because this was an act of Congress that established this wilderness and you can't have an administration come in and say, we're going to change this based well, on our whims. And it's, and the point that Carter makes, who as a 97-year-old just filed a brief in court on this issue, which is just impressive in and of itself, the point that he makes is that the way the law was written, the Secretary of Interior can't just pick and choose how it's interpreted the law is, writ, was written a certain way, and they can't just say, okay, but this piece of it we're going to change. It's the law, and so they can't.
1: This may not sound like a big deal. It's a massive deal. This kind of legal precedent could threaten the very existence of the national park system as we know it.
2: Right, and so I think it's about the precedent, because if you could do that, then what's to stop you from going into Yosemite Valley and saying, oh, well, there's this company that would love to commercialize the valley. And so we're going to trade the land in the valley to them and they'll give us some land somewhere else in the Sierras. That it's the same difference. Yosemite was established by an act of Congress. So, So to say that you can do that, it sets a, frankly, a terrifying precedent for our public lands that have previously been safeguarded. So anyway, that's something that's going on right now that a lot of people aren't talking about, but it
1: could have huge implications. As they were describing what was happening in Alaska, it occurred to me that I'd heard of something similar happen in Yosemite in the 19th century. i had read it on their website, actually, but I couldn't remember the name of the controversy.
2: Oh, Hetch Hetchy. I was going to tell the story of that. I was going to say, it just like that, where Hetch Hetchy is part of Yosemite National Park, and I want to say it was under the Wilson administration. I, I can't remember but I'll fact check, yeah. Yeah. But basically what happened was the city of San Francisco needed a fresh water supply. They were running out of the where they were currently getting their water from. And it was Wilson. Were, yeah, there were places where they could have gotten water that were gonna that would have cost a lot more money, but they could have done it. But they really wanted to dam the hetch hetchy valley in yosemite and make it a reservoir and would the, give the, them yeah. the fresh water that they And needed. just to set this yeah to set the stage for what hetch hetchy looked like it is almost in a replica of Yosemite Valley. Just imagine today if they put a dam in Yosemite Valley. John Muir said it was of equal scenic beauty. There are photos of it. It's incredible. But Jim, you can continue. Yeah, and so John Muir is out in front, saying that this is this place is a, is a cathedral. It's absolutely incredible. You can't do this and. They ended up, what they did was the city of San Francisco, I believe their former either mayor or anyway, was now very influential cabinet member in the Wilson administration. And so they managed to convince the Wilson administration to give them the go ahead. And they were actually able to dam in a national park, which is, it's it, frankly, it's an illegal act. You can't do that because it was preserved by Congress. They found a way around it, and that set a very chilling precedent, which has never been done since.
1: Before the end of the conversation, I want to ask for some practical advice on visiting the parks. Because most of the major ones are out west, I asked the brothers if there were any national parks in the eastern half of the country that might function as something of a poor man's Yosemite or Yellowstone.
2: Oh, they're not even... They're not even poor man's Here, Jim, I'll tee up here and you can. <laughs> <laughs> well, so first of all, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, I would say if you're living in the eastern United States, there are very few places in the eastern United States where you could see the land the way it was when Europeans first got here and Great Smoky Mountains is one of those places. There are still old-growth trees there, old-growth forest intact. I think FDR, when he dedicated the park He had a great line. He said, he said, there are brooks still running here that the pioneers cupped their hands and drank from when they first, you know, got here. And there are trees here that are older than our forefathers and so forth. And so Great Smoky Mountains is certainly a place that has the grandeur and it has, I couldn't recommend it more it is the most visited national park in the country so i i 10 would say, million people visit the great smoky mountains every yeah, single year i is, would say if you're planning on going obviously try and avoid the weekend and and if you can avoid the summer <laughs> but uh, except for the it's, synchronized i we thought love jim it was gonna in, go in the fall i thought jim was gonna go a different direction for this one especially in the midwest you have in minnesota the national park that Jim and I both think is the most underrated national park in okay. America, which is Voyagers National Park. Just a few things. For one, people think you have to go to either Iceland or Alaska to see the Northern Lights. You don't. The best displays of Northern Lights in the continental US and some of the best in the world happen in Voyagers on a regular basis. The sunsets in that park are unlike any you will see in any park because it's so water based that it's you're getting you're always getting two sunsets, you're getting the sunset and the sunset off of the water, and it is just magical. Uh, I really enjoy that Will and I can speak from a position of authority on (laughs) things like sunsets because (laughs) I can say that the best sunsets I've ever seen are in Voyagers National Park, and it's my job to photograph. (laughs) Amazing sunsets all the time. And I've seen amazing ones all over the country. But Voyagers National Park, just dollar for dollar every single time. When you've got uh, some nice clouds going and the water is calm, those, the waters on those huge lakes just oftentimes can just be glassy. And you get this beautiful mirrored sunset that's just like, it's like nothing you've seen. And the park is just, it's a very unique park because it's almost all water-based. And so you have to have a boat of some kind, which are easy to get which, up there. Yeah, um, inexpensive to rent. Even you can rent houseboats, you can rent pontoons, you yeah. can rent kayaks, the whole deal. And the cool thing, as Jim was probably about to say, is that there are no campgrounds. There are only campsites. And every campsite is designed so that you cannot see one campsite from another. So it's the ultimate park for solitude. And experiences nature, not to mention bald eagles, beavers, moose, wolves. Yeah, it's a really special place that has just the ability to get out there and, and have that solitude. And as Will was saying that the campsites, it's not most national parks, you go to a campground and it's like, okay, you expect to hear the whir of generators and RVs <laughs> and kids riding their bikes and so forth. And and some of that can be kind of calming in a sense, because it's like, yeah, I'm back in a campground. This is what it's like. But in voyagers they're all completely unto themselves some of them are on their own islands and it's a special place and definitely the most underrated national park and I, I would chip in two more quickly one is tomorrow we're actually launching our latest film on badlands national park we've covered the park once before but we felt like we didn't do it quite justice so we're back and actually working with the state of south dakota this is it's going to be a really beautiful film you can see it on our website more than just parks.com, but it's the Badlands. If you're willing to go a little bit further from that Minnesota Midwest area, epic, epic national park with bison. It's, the, I guess, probably the first park heading west where there are bison. They're pure bison from a lot of the bison we have today are what, you know, are commonly referred to as beefalo. These are not, these are the ones that are Native Americans and people have seen for a long time. That's a great one. And then also, I would say in the Colorado, Utah area, Great Sand Dunes National Park, a very little lesser visited park that is just imagine the uh, the foreground is something that looks like a desert to an American with the backdrop of the Rocky Mountains. It is an unbelievable place. And, and like You feel like you're in the desert in these dunes, but you look up and there are the Rocky Mountains. Within a day, you can experience the desert and also beautiful alpine scenery. go catch a trout and then go sandboarding. And so it's an otherworldly place that is one of the most beautiful places in America. I also, Will and I did Theodore Roosevelt National Park in North Dakota. And that one, I was just shocked by a lot of people think of North Dakota. And the thing that comes to mind is the movie Fargo. And (laughs) that's just, uh, that's the way it is, I guess. But I'll tell you what, you go out to Medora, which is where it is. and, And the park is set. It's where Theodore Roosevelt lived for a time. And it's where he discovered this love of those landscapes and and they actually preserve his his old cabin is there you can go and visit that but the landscapes are just gigantic you have bison and I was blown away and will and I we did a backcountry hike they have petrified forests oh, petrified weird. forest we've been to Petrified Forest National Park in Arizona and not to take anything away from that but I'll tell you what Theodore Roosevelt National Park, has the most incredible petrified forest remnants I have ever seen. They have giant dumps from like prehistoric cypress trees that are like like huge, they're gigantic and they're, they're completely yeah. preserved and they're just totally petrified. I've never seen them so intact like that. And it, they're everywhere all over this, there's a hike where you can get to them and
1: it's just amazing. Over the course of the last year, I'd heard from a number of people who had attempted to visit a park without a reservation and had been turned away. Before hearing that, I had no idea reservations were even necessary.
2: A lot of that's very new. Those these timed entry systems and reservations and things. Will and I, when we started doing what we're doing, we would roll up into national parks any time of day. We'd roll up into the campgrounds and we'd get a campsite and never any problem. And now you could never do that. And it just in the last 10 years, the amount of change that our parks have undergone because of visitation, which is it's great that people are wanting to visit these places. But I think another thing is we talked about the fact that the parks have these these billions of dollars of deferred maintenance. And some of that is because they need more campgrounds or they need to develop some other opportunities for people to disperse a little more or. Things like that. And so that, that can be a real issue now. But, but I, I yeah. would say, I think some people might listen to this and say, well, hang on a second. You guys make these films about the national parks and a lot of this stuff makes them look pretty good. So aren't you guys part of the problem? And to that point, Gemini's whole thing is... We think that greater awareness of these places ultimately leads to greater protection. And so we think it's important for you to go and have amazing experience in these national parks because then when you come back home, you tell your friends, people know about how amazing they are. If ever some of these natural places come into any kind of real danger from interests, you know, your friends know, everybody knows that no, there will never be a chance that there will be an oil well in Yosemite or a gold mine in Zion or different things like this because the more people that know about these places, the better. Overcrowding is a casualty of that. But I think as Americans, we're falling back in love with the national parks, especially enhanced by covid I think this is a, an issue that will eventually sort itself out in time. But I'll tell you what, overcrowding sure beats an alternative of extraction and exploitation. Absolutely. And so there's a term that a lot of people in the industry will talk about is, our parks being loved to death? And they'll, they'll say that, but I'd so much rather have people love the parks, then less people love the parks. And Because if you love these places, you have a respect for them and you don't want anything bad to happen to them. And and yes, there'll be some overcrowding and things that can come with that. But more than that, it's just about people care about these places. And when the park service says, hey, you know what? Because so many people are visiting, we need to do timed entry or we need to do this. You're okay with that because you care about the place and you want what's best for these places. And I think that's really it, is the more people who want what's best for our national parks, the more people with a vested interest in our national parks, the better off they are in the long run.
1: Will and Jim will be back with us for an episode on the CCC in the coming weeks. In the meantime, I couldn't recommend their website more highly. It's called More Than Just Parks at morethanjustparks.com. And even if you can't make it to the parks in person, they have articles and videos that will get you as close as possible without actually making the trip.